You know what happens when you flip a light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Hi, everybody. Welcome to season two of No Power. Today, we are talking with my friend and colleague, David Applebaum. David is a senior counselor for a public affairs group called the Hawthorne Group. They do all sorts of things from managing strategies for folks that are looking to enter new markets to making sure that they build community engagement strategies for folks that are looking to develop power projects. And I think we touch on some really important topics here. In the intro to the show, we asked the question hypothetically, why can't we have solar panels everywhere all at once? And we deal with the realities that you have to sort of integrate these resources into the communities where they're going to be located and how to do that effectively, what some of the strategies are that can work to engage constructively with those communities so that you can work in harmony with folks to get projects over the finish line. So great conversation with David. Really excited about this one. David was fantastic. It was really great to listen to him talk about what's happening at the community level, at the local level, how these projects could actually benefit communities, engaging the communities earlier and seeing what their feedback is and what their needs are, being respectful of their processes, and really making this something that the community and the developer are both excited about. I hope you guys enjoy listening to the podcast with David. He was fantastic. David, welcome to No Power. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you for having me. I've learned that senior counselor and a veteran in the industry is a proxy for being old, which I radically acknowledge all of that. <laughs> so good to be with you, you youngsters. <laughs> well, thank you, David. That is great. And listen, old, experienced, I don't know, these could be synonyms. Whatever works. Exactly. So when you're thinking about this or when we're thinking about permitting, can you just take us through kind of at a high level what it is that we're talking about? And I'm really interested in the stakeholders that are involved here. Are we talking about federal government? Are we talking about states? Are we talking about local towns and municipalities? Can you give us just sort of that primer 101 level for us? Sure. And I think the answer is it depends. Wherever you're locating, whatever state you happen to be developing in really will determine whether or not you're dealing with permitting issues at the state or the local levels. Typically, you're dealing with both. For the most part, at the federal level, there are incentives, but not necessarily rules and regulations, unless you're dealing with environmentally sensitive areas, in which case you've got endangered species, you've got some clean water issues and things of that nature. Much of that has been provided in terms of authority to the local or to the state level. So really, you're dealing with the state levels and local levels. At the state level, again, it's environmental issues, it's clean water issues. In some cases, if you're developing non-renewable issues, you're dealing with air issues and things like that. However, for the most part, if you're going to develop at the local level or the county level, you need permits and you need approvals at that level to develop or to get an exception, or to get a conditional use permit, or things of that nature. And that could be everything from construction, to road use, to environmental, to decommissioning a project, what happens to a project at end of use. All of that could be separate permits. All of that could be combined into a combined permit. So it just depends on the state in which you're doing work in. And you need to get to in the final analysis from the local township committee or the county committee or the planning and zoning board or things of that nature, you need to get approvals each step along that way. And so that's really how it works. Sounds to me like a couple of observations there, and I'd love to get your reaction to this to see if I'm kind of close to the mark here. So you're at a minimum, you're gonna end up with sort of 50 different regimes across the 50 states. 
but it's even sort of more granular than that, right? Within each state, a particular county, a particular town, even like two towns within the same counties might have very different permitting regimes, different sort of regulatory bodies that are in charge of these things. So your strategy almost needs to be hyper-local, right? And it's going to differentiate itself across the street from one town to another. Does that sound about right? It sounds perfect. Except it's perfect when you're trying to implement it because it gets confusing as you work across the regimes. But the challenge is that every municipality or every county, depending on the state, has its own ordinance for dealing with how you develop local projects. Wind and solar, there might be storage included in that. There might not be storage included in that. And in many communities, as we're learning, particularly in certain parts of the country, particularly rural parts of the country, there are no ordinances at all. And so you find a situation where you've gone into a community, they have no planning and zoning, they may not have an ordinance at all. It needs to try and, you know, renewables need to fit under a standard commercial or industrial zoning regime if they have zoning at all. And in some of these communities, they don't have zoning at all. And so now you're dealing with communities that for the first time are trying to wrap their heads around this new technology that they don't know anything about. And now they listen to the community. Now they listen to the developers and they're trying to make some sense of it. It's a real challenge everywhere we go. And in many of the communities that we've done work in and that developers work in, you find that when too much information gets funneled into decision makers and they don't have any standardized way to deal with that, any institutionalized way to deal with that, whether it's an ordinance or something else, they simply punt to a moratorium. And that's when challenges come in. So David, we've seen some states that are obviously very favorable to developing renewables, and they're trying to get that access there, and they're trying to include their communities. Can you talk a little bit about the progress that you have seen made in some of those states? Like, what did things look like 10 years ago versus today? It feels like we've made a lot of progress to me, but obviously your troops on the ground, and I'd love to hear that perspective. Depending on the part of the country that you're working in, and frankly, states and communities, some of them have very vibrant, very specific community engagement rules and regulations that are put into state laws, local ordinances, things of that nature. And developers know that walking in the door. The smart developers are the developers that walk in that door and they engage with the community right away. And there are plenty of developers out there that take the position, well, you know, we don't really have all our land locked up. We don't really have our resource perfectly set. We don't have all our studies done and things of that nature. We're going to keep the project close to the vest as long as we can. And then at the appropriate time, we'll talk to the community about it. Usually by that time, Somebody in that community has seen a land agent driving around with a license plate from out of state, and they've now figured you out. So you're now posted to Facebook. It's there is some developer out there that's looking to do something here. We have no idea what they're doing. And the litany of nasty things that anybody could say about a project are now on Facebook and in the public domain. So the smart developers are the ones that will actually go out They will, first of all, take very seriously the community engagement rules and regulations that are out there. But in the absence of those, and again, the Northeast is where you see a lot of it. The Midwest is where you're seeing more of it. The West and Southwest, you see much of it in terms of specific rules and regulations for community engagement. But in certain parts of the country, you just don't see it yet. And so it's up to the developer to do that engagement and to be proactive with it. It's almost like you're saying that if you don't sort of get in front of this, you give the community the opportunity to get the wrong impression, to develop a bad impression of a project for you. And they'll sort of impute the worst views of the potential outcomes here unless you are proactive and you engage to manage that narrative on your own. It's that vacuum of information. They only hear one side. They don't know anything about solar or wind or things of that nature, except what they see from stop solar farms or other websites that are out there. And they impute, as you suggest, that information, whatever nasties they could find, to that project before you've even had a chance to fill the void. Better that you go into a community, even if you're not sure, 
even if your project's not yet fully developed, even though you don't necessarily have your land locked up, go in there, say we're interested, here's what we're looking to do, not fully baked yet, but we'd like your input. We really want to hear what you have to say about it. And that's not just decision makers, that's communities too. And it's third-party organizations, NGOs, ENGOs, organizations that are active in the community, the Chamber of Commerce, the Lions Club, whoever it is out there, the Board of Education, the PTOs, engage them early and as quickly as you can and let them know that you're interested in being a good neighbor and not just interested in playing hide the pee when it comes to details of your project. So David, what processes have you seen be the most successful for developers? Like they go in, they want to engage the community. Sometimes that's often difficult to do in smaller communities, particularly even smaller communities where not everybody has robust access to the internet. So like, what are we doing in those rural communities? How can we engage them and focus on benefits to the community? There are what we call old school tools. There are new school tools, but there are tools. And firms like ours recommend tools all the time, the old school, particularly in communities, Noha, that you're referring to, where they may not have full access to the internet or whatever that might be. But there are letters to the editor. There are letters that are direct mail oriented. You can make phone calls. You can put door knockers on, the old school door knockers that we used to use in the old campaigns. These are old school tools, but they work. And you invite folks to town meetings, you engage them that way, and you just listen. You tell them a bit about your project, what you're thinking of doing, and you listen. It's not necessarily a pleasant process because you may hear a lot of concerns, but at least you know what you're working with. The new school tools for those communities that have access to it Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Most of these projects out there now have Facebook pages. Some of them are interactive, some aren't. Those that are, you know, if you're taking feedback from a community through a Facebook page, the only advice that I would offer is if you're going to get comments from a community, you need to have somebody watching that Facebook page all the time to make sure that you get responses back. And when I say responses back, it's in hours, not in days. You don't want a bad comment hanging out there for a period of time, you know, unresponded. We've learned anything about the social media. It's that viral component to it, like how quickly a false narrative or some piece of commentary can travel and how far it can get. I mean, it can gain traction and just expand exponentially in a very short period of time. To orient folks a little bit here, because I think all of that is really important, but I think there is a legitimacy to these concerns. So if you think about a gas-fired power plant, as an example. There was a permitting and zoning regime that flooded across nationally in, like, let's call it the 1980s when we went through the pre-IRA biggest piece of tax reform and zoning reform in the country here. A thermal power plant like a gas plant, it looks like a factory for the most part with a slightly larger smokestack on top of it. They're mostly zoned in industrial areas where there's other factories that kind of look like that. And they're relatively small. A thousand megawatt power plant might sit on 50 acres of property, which would sort of look like maybe a Home Depot-esque type of mall. Where if you imagine a utility scale solar project, it's probably going to take between five and 10 acres per megawatt to build that type of a project. So if you're thinking about a hundred acre solar farm, you're thinking about putting solar panels on, I'm sorry, if you're talking about a hundred megawatt solar farm, you're probably talking about upwards of 500 to 1,000 acres of property. And so the landscape will look very different when you build this technology. And I think it's fair for folks to ask questions because it is going to be a very noticeable change to their community. Is part of this also like accepting that reality that these technologies are different, that this is relatively new, and look, they do have an impact on the communities where they're going to be cited? Yeah, and I think the other issue is making sure that you as a developer take into consideration those specific concerns. In most ordinances, you will find specific requirements for setbacks, landscaping, buffers, fencing, things of that nature that limit to the extent possible anything associated with the visuals of that project on neighboring properties. 
The other benefit that you have to impart on a community is that most of these projects come with very significant revenue benefits to the community itself. That may not be the compelling view if you're next door to it. And so you're more concerned with those setbacks and buffers and things of that nature and tree stands to make sure that you can't see that project and that it is environmentally as sensitive as it can be in terms of runoff, sediment control, things of that nature. With wind, again, same issues apply. Setbacks, buffers, you want to make sure that there is as minimal impact as possible between that project and neighboring residential homes or occupied properties, schools, things of that nature. And those are typically incorporated within ordinances, but in the event that you don't have them, you need an environmentally sensitive or a developmentally sensitive developer who will understand what the concerns of the community are. Again, that goes back now to your point about the interaction between the community and the developer and making sure that you get the input that you can get so that you can incorporate all of those concerns within the project that you ultimately develop. Because decision makers, that's what they want to see. They don't want to just hear from one side in this discussion. Most of the time, it's going to be the opponents. What they want is that if there are going to be opponents, you've taken into consideration as much as possible all of the concerns that that community may have. You may not address all of them, but they want to see that you've been responsive and responsible about doing that. I used to live in LA. We would drive to Palm Springs and that drive has some of the oldest windmills in the country. And that was hotly contested when it went in. And now it's scenic. People stop and take pictures of it. The dialogue has evolved. And I'd love to hear about that evolution and sort of the narrowed, perhaps more sophisticated focus today? Most of the, well, many of the communities that have experience with renewables accept renewables. So when you come back in, in five years, 10 years, 15 years, and you look at that community and you say, you know what, maybe it's an opportunity for us to repower those projects. The technology's gotten old. Let's bring back some newer technology and let's put it up there. I'd say the vast majority of those projects, and repowering is now becoming very popular, most of those projects are accepted readily. These are communities that are used to these projects and renewables. They've come to understand the benefits of it. They've learned to work in collaboration with it. It's part of the community now. For many of these communities that have not seen renewables at all, it is that ultimate fear of the unknown. They just don't know how to deal with that. And so we find that a lot in the South. We find that a lot in parts of the Midwest. And it's not because the South or the Midwest are just different regions. It's because they've just not had that experience before. And many of their communities aren't set up for it. They don't have the ordinances. It's that change, fear of change, fear of the unknown, not understanding what the technology is all about that creates the problem. It's incumbent upon the developers to fill that void, but that's what we're seeing. So in some parts of the country, in some places, there is a much more willingness, if you will, to accept these technologies and to understand the benefits that they provide, not just environmental benefits, because some communities, to be honest with you, are less concerned about the environmental impacts and benefits that they can provide. They're less compelled by climate change. They're more interested in, number one, energy independence. Mm -hmm. Number two, can we preserve farmland for the future? Because many of these technologies, whether it's wind or solar, these are temporary technologies. At some point in time, these will be taken down. And so you can preserve that farm and keep it economically viable. Communities can accept that. They may not be compelled by the fact that we're saving the climate, they're more concerned with jobs, economic development, saving the farms. And so those are important things to keep in mind. You mentioned the South, and I think Southwest Power Pool, a market that I'm actively engaged in, we've seen a lot of development of wind assets in Southwest Power Pool and a lot of evolution in those state processes. Can you talk a little bit about that progress? What we're seeing, whether it's Southwest or the South, is at least at the state level, 
a greater understanding of the economic benefits that clean energy can provide and that renewables can provide. And what's been happening is, particularly in those regions where labor costs tend to be a little bit less, there is an interest on the part of the state to provide economic incentives at the state level, job training and retraining at the state level, and provide that to developers, CNI commercial and industrial customers who are willing to come in. And these are some of the biggest companies in the world that are willing to do this. I could list them off. It's Airbus, it's Mercedes, it's Toyota, whoever it might be. These are companies that are really interested in expanding their employment and investment in a number of these states in those regions. And so the states have provided the incentives. And what comes with that, what's of interest to those companies in terms of sustainability and overall environmental and climate goals is the ability to tap into clean energy. And so there is work between the state, the state's utilities, the Public Service Commission to combine and provide those incentives. Where the disconnect comes in is that those incentives don't necessarily accrue to the local level. And so you're now telling the developers, okay, great incentives at the state level. We've got company X that wants to come in. Company X talks to the utility. The utility gets a PPA for a third-party developer from the Public Service Commission. PPA is purchase power purchase agreement. And so at the local level, you now got the community that's sitting there saying, "Uh, we need to take this project, but we don't necessarily see the economic benefit associated with that. What's in it for me, right? That's right. And in some cases, you see the economic benefit come through the development of a factory two counties away, and your county is the one that now has the renewable development project. And so, yes, they get tax benefits from that. They get significant benefits from the project, but somehow they're still feeling, to your point, Mike, "Mm, okay, but what's really in it for me? Let's unpack that a little bit, because I think there's an important component to what you're saying. I'll pick one of the companies that you listed off, Mercedes, European domiciled firm in a country that is a signatory to the Paris Climate Accord. So they have requirements in terms of how they're going to reduce their global carbon footprint. So let's say Mercedes says they're going to expand or build a new factory in pick a community here in the South. The state is going to say, sweet, that's a great idea. We're going to come up with a package to make sure that our state or this location is the most economically advantageous to you. And they're going to come up with that. And that manifests itself in all sorts of jobs and tax base and all sorts of great things for those communities. But Mercedes is going to come back and say, and by the way, this is terrific. We love all of that. But we also need to buy renewable power because we have these objectives. We have these requirements and things like that. So you're going to have to create an opportunity for me, state, to be able to find these types of projects. That is that feedback loop that you're talking about. But the project that the solar project or the renewable project, wind project, whatever it is, may be located a long way away from where the actual factory is. You have a local impact in two communities, one community where the factory is, another community where the new renewable project is going in, but there is that disconnect there. And you sort of still have that concept is like, yeah, it's great that Mercedes is putting all these jobs and tax base in this portion of my state, but I'm here with this power plant. What am I getting out of it? That's kind of the tension that you're talking about. And ultimately that feedback loop that's drawing these projects to these jurisdictions. That is correct. And it could be any company. We see this scattered all about any number of major employers that are coming in, either growing their employment base or seeking to expand in a certain state or a certain region. And the state's done, from their perspective, everything that they can do to provide the incentives. It's just what's in it for that local community that can really connect the dots. We're struggling a little bit within the state's. We're struggling a little bit within the local communities to figure out what the ability is to connect those dots. It sounds to me like when you're thinking through these scenarios with Hawthorne Group and how you're going to get there, it's your job to sort of complete those dots. How are we going to address these 
local issues so that we can sort of fill in the gaps there. So can you talk us through, if you're engaged in a scenario like this, what is the strategy? What does the playbook look like for you guys? What's the team? Who do you pull together? How do you start to think about this? Can you give us sort of at a high level how you would begin to tackle that and to fill in those gaps? And the most important thing that you can do is think about all of these efforts like a political campaign. It's not a campaign for a candidate. It is a campaign for a project. And so you're selling a product or a project, which, by the way, happens all the time. There are plenty of firms out there that don't really do political campaigns. They do project-based or issue-oriented campaigns, things of that nature. That's how we look at it. And the first thing that we will tell a company, there's a whole list of things that we'll tell a company to do. The first piece of advice that we would give them would be train your developer as well. And what I think we're finding out there in the community is that, especially with IRA having been passed not long ago, there is so much from the perspective of resources within each of these, there's so much funding out there that what you're finding is there are plenty of new and different renewable companies and energy companies that are cropping up. And there's so much opportunity for investors to invest, but also for developers to develop new renewable resources. And all of that creates a situation where developers are new. They're green. They don't really have a whole lot of experience. So the first piece of advice is basically invest in your developers, train your developers well. But the most important piece, if you think about the origination process, the early stage review process for renewables, there are a variety of things that you look at. You look at your land, you look at your interconnection, you look at what the environment looks like, what the solar or wind resource, how much wind is out there, how much sun is out there. Those are fundamentals. And that's what a developer is trained to think about. What a developer doesn't always think about is what is the local environment, local culture, local politics, what does that look like? And I will tell you that aside from companies that we know and that we represent, I've spoken with any number of them, including the most experienced in the industry. They all missed that step. Interesting. They all missed the step of, geez, we should have done sentiment analysis. We should have done our stakeholder mapping. We should have done an understanding of what the history has been for major development. By the way, major development could be Home Depot. It could be Starbucks and McDonald's. It could be any number of things. You need to understand what the receptivity of a community has been to that. You need to understand if there are major bond issues for schools that have gone up or down. You need to understand what the finances of the community are looking like. You need to map that out and have a clear picture of a community. Knowing that, understanding that gives you two choices. Number one, you may find out that the community is totally opposed to things like renewables, just based on the experience that they might've had with other types of projects. So what's the answer? The answer is, well, we can move, we can go somewhere else. But if you think that this is the perfect location for you and you're destined to go forward, you're committed to it. Okay, so you build that risk into your budget and you build those additional tools that we were talking about before into your budget. And you go out and you do a public opinion poll, You may do some focus groups. Try and understand as best you can the messaging that works and that works against you in each of these local communities so that you're prepared before you go in to know how to address that community. If you don't do that, you set yourself for a difficult time. Sometimes it's failure. Increasingly, it's failure. But for the most part, you want to try and do these things up front so that you can avoid the heartache at the back end of it and the additional investment. So as you're saying all this, it is bringing me back to when you said, you know, your new tools and your old tools. Do you think that developers sort of are facing some headwinds because the new tools are much more powerful than the old tools? I used to do grassroots campaigns before law school ages ago, and it used to be you go knocking door to door. Facebook was somewhat popular, but now you can spread a message like wildfire in no time. And is that just a much more difficult thing for some of these developers to address and deal with and engage in immediately when things can go viral? The short answer is yes. 
Once it's on Facebook, it's gone. It's now spread around. I mean, we've now gone through a whole metamorphosis through COVID where everybody does Zoom for everything. <laughs> and so every town hall meeting, whereas you used to every third Tuesday or every fourth Tuesday, if you really were committed to it, you could go drive down to the town hall and do your town or county commission meeting and see what's going on. Most people didn't know about what's going on until they read the morning newspaper two or three days thereafter. And so now you could just sit at home and dial up through Zoom or some other web process what's going on in real time. And so you know all about that in real time. That information gets posted to Facebook and Twitter and everything else in real time. And so your ability to and your need to react to that instantaneously is in real time. You need to have people monitoring that all the time. And by the way, that's not just in sophisticated communities. That's in some of the older communities in certain regions of the country that you didn't necessarily think of as being that sophisticated. That having been said, we've done campaigns and I've seen campaigns that have been done in very rural communities where it just doesn't make sense to do Facebook, Twitter. If you're dealing with a community of two, three, four hundred people, sometimes door to door makes it a whole lot more sensible. Sure. Meet them where they are, right? It's the retail politics that, Noah, you're referring to that you used to do when you were doing your grassroots stuff. It is just as effective. It just depends on the scale. It depends on the community. You just have to understand that going in. So both sets of tools can work. You said you have to price that into your project. And that makes sense. It's a very real, could be a very expensive cost. So do you think social media has really driven up the cost of some of this development? In some respects, it depends on the social media. It has to some extent, but I also think if you were to ask our social media experts, I am not one of them, but we certainly have them on staff, they will tell you that it's a very efficient way of reaching broader audiences and a very cost-effective way of doing that. If you're stuck doing, and of course, in the old school way, there's radio, there's television, there's things of that nature, which folks still do. But if you're doing, in our world, some of the more mainstream decision-maker-driven media outlets, and some that we know, I'll name a few of them, but it could be Politico, it could be city and state, it could be a variety of others. It can be a fairly cost-effective way to reach folks, as opposed to putting banner ads in old mainstream media. Radio is still pretty cost-effective, but Facebook, digital ads on Google, whatever the search engine might be, most of the media folks these days will tell you that that's a fairly cost-effective tool. It's fascinating to hear you say that. And we're just kind of riffing on Noha's question there. It seems like the big sort of shift in strategy here and the shift in cost is that, I'm not sure if this is the right phrase, but you're almost saying is that like the success strategy here is this quote unquote political opposition research upfront doing all of that sort of legwork to sort of know that community, to know the environment that you're going into as part of your DevEx. It's almost as important to you, as you said, as like figuring out your point of interconnection or how much wind is going to be in a particular property. It sort of is getting developers to internalize the reality that like spending those dollars up front has tangible value for you and might be the difference between a project going forward or not. Have you found that you're trying to sort of restructure these folks thinking to appreciate that value proposition and to get them to recognize that that's a cost they need to spend out of the gate for these projects? Absolutely. This is what we call the campaign mindset. So all the other things that we talked about developers focusing on up front, the four, I don't know what you'd call it, the four fundamentals. Fundamentals, yeah. Getting your land, getting your point of interconnection, getting in the queue, all of those things, they're fundamental. Stakeholder analysis, sentiment analysis, developing that report, that understanding of what's going on at the local level up front is as fundamental to that process as those other four fundamentals. You've got to have them in order to have a complete picture of what a community looks like before you go. If you don't do that, you place yourself at risk and you might get lucky. You may be perfectly great, but why be lucky 
you know, the old statement, you'd rather be lucky than good. I'd rather be good. There's a lot of money at stake for these projects. You mentioned a 100 megawatt solar project. How much is that? $100 million? Oh, yeah. $110, 120000000 million? Easily. That's a lot of money at stake. So when you've got investors looking over your shoulder, you want to make sure that you do your due diligence right coming out of the gate. Show them that you've got a full understanding of what's going on and teach your developers that they need to have that component done right up front. Because to your point from before, there is a playbook that developers need to go through. The point that we always try and make is your playbook's great, but it's only as good as the ability to enforce the developer's ability to do it, to actually understand what's in the playbook and to execute the playbook. If you don't do it, then it's still a problem. This is really no different than the lesson that Microsoft learned engaging on Capitol Hill. DC saying, if you're not at the dinner table, you are dinner. This has been around for a very long time, and we're just now seeing more of it in the renewables industry at the local level as a base requirement is effectively what you're saying. This is basic political campaign 101. And I mean, the folks who are opposed to renewables for what they believe are very legitimate concerns, and in some cases they may be, they're engaging in those political tactics. They're engaging in that campaign in sometimes very sophisticated ways and sometimes not so sophisticated ways, but equally effective in both cases. And so you've got to be as sophisticated on the other side to get your message across. I'm not suggesting that you need to do anything untoward, anything inappropriate. Everything needs to be above board, but you need to use the tools at your disposal. You need to be prepared. You need to be upfront and you need to be engaging early. It's really an education process. Very much so. And if you couple those two together, I love that analogy that you gave there, Noha, of like, if you're not at dinner, you're on the dinner table. For me anyway, like salient example of this would be offshore wind in Davis and my former home states of New Jersey. There's been a recent spat across the East Coast, but in New Jersey in particular, of whales and dolphins dying and washing up on the beach. And opponents of the offshore wind industry tagged offshore wind as the culprit that was causing these unfortunate deaths for whales. And you can see how, oh, it would make sense. We're doing this big industrial activity. We're building these huge wind farms in the sea. There must be all of these machines going around and doing things that are disrupting it. It tugs on your heartstrings when you see these pictures and things that show up, right? It creates this emotional response and it's easy to make that causal connection. Pause for a second. There actually is no offshore wind development activity going on in New Jersey right now, they're actually, they're not building those projects. The best thing that you've got is a buoy that's taking some wind data on those sites. And that's really predominantly it. But to your point, David, is like, are your opponents using these tools in the same way against you? For me, that's a very tangible example of, yes, they are, and how effective they can be. When I go to my folks community in coastal Asbury Park area, New Jersey, you hear people echo that, oh my gosh, I'm scared of offshore wind because it's killing all of the whales. It isn't, right? But it sounds good and it feels good, right? And that sort of is like kind of the lesson that you're preaching here. It's like getting in front of that, managing that, being equipped with those tools to be able to make sure that you're not dinner is important because it's impressive how fast that can get away from you. I wonder, do you tailor that strategy differently depending upon the political leanings of the communities that you're going into? For example, if you're in a very red area or a very blue area, do you differentiate the message? And we're talking about this as politics. Do you sort of address it through the lens of the politics of those particular communities? Generally, yes. The tools are the same. The messaging may be different depending on the community. If you're working in a community that's very concerned about the environment, there may be 15 messages that come out of that. Some of that is job creation. Some of it is climate change. Some of it is economic investment. There's an array of them. Depending on what community you're in, you may select from that list of 15 and understand through polls, focus groups, things of that nature, which ones are most important to that community. It's really helpful if you can go in and understand what the concerns of the community are beforehand and make sure that your projects are tailored to address the concerns of the community. 
And what you say addresses the concerns of the community. It's not disingenuous, although I've heard projects that I've worked on called disingenuous and the efforts disingenuous. You know, how do you sleep at night? We're, believe me, putting forward the arguments that are resonating most with that community. If they're concerned about preservation of farmland, if they're concerned about environmental stewardship for the future, if they're concerned about job opportunities for future generations, things of that nature, that plays in certain communities. If you're concerned about climate change and being able to avoid major storms, hurricanes, things of that nature. Resilience and things like that. Absolutely. That's another issue. And that's another set of arguments. So the arguments aren't different. They're just tailored in a certain way to meet the concerns of the community. And that's how we do it. It's not that we're making new stuff up for each community. It's just making sure that we tailor it the right way to meet the needs of that community. Which is a really good segue into something I wanted to ask you, which is there are a lot of folks that believe that there are these large movements and larger groups that are funding these things on both sides and that they're really the ones kind of driving the ship. And I sort of think of it as like the Reddit conspiracy theory chains about what's happening. But I'd love to hear more about your perspective. Is there a lot of big money behind some of these movements? Are they more orchestrated on both sides than the general public appreciates? Generally not. There are accusations out there that many of the opposition groups are funded by the oil and coal industries and things of that nature. There may be a little of that out there, but for the most part, we found that it's very genuine, very organic. These are real concerns in these communities, and it comes out of a lack of education on the part of the developers and just a lack of experience on the part with these particular technologies overall. And so we're not seeing it. I'm sure there's some of that out there. I think there's a desire to try and almost in too easy a way say, these folks over here, it's all this dark money. They're funneling that dark money to oppose renewables. I think that's a small fraction of what we see going on out there. However, we do see certain institutional websites out there that I don't think are dark money funded. I think they're funded by folks who over time have become concerned in a genuine way about renewables. Now, they may be concerned about a project in the Midwest, but because of social media, they now have the ability to network all across the country. And so they post, you can buy your anti-signs here, you know, your stop solar panels, stop wind farms, whatever that is, you can post that and they can go ahead and purchase signs and do whatever they want to do online, no differently than me going online for Amazon to go buy a pair of sneakers. But it's out there, the messaging, the playbooks, things of that nature, those are put forward on websites, centralized websites as well. There are some folks out there who have developed a network of websites across the country. And by the same token, folks in Community X that are just formulating their own opposition group now have the ability online to network with those centralized websites. Again, I don't assign any nefarious motives to them. I don't think they're funded by dark money. There's no evidence that they are, but it provides centralized sources of information that different opposition groups all across the country can utilize. And that has gotten us to that point that I had mentioned a little bit ago about Developers saying, you know, we're hearing the same messages everywhere we go. They're using the exact same language everywhere we go. What's going on here? That's what's going on. That's such a good observation. It ties back to your earlier point on how nature abhors a vacuum. It could seem like, oh my God, there's got to be this grand puppet master that's strategically moving all of these pieces behind the scenes to stop these projects. Sounds like you're saying like in many cases, maybe most cases, the vast majority of them, that it's not that. It's somebody sitting at their kitchen table Googling solar farm impacts on my community and seeing what comes up and finding their way to 
a picture of a project that had a negative impact on some community, right? And it's a far more organic, far less orchestrated process, but it leads them to the same place because the internet leads us all to the same place. It sort of all takes us to, this is the most popular version of this website that meets the criteria they search for. You're sort of naturally hearing that echo chamber by virtue of the way communications virtually work. The other thing that we're seeing, in addition to all of that, which you just mentioned, is there is a pent-up frustration, anger. It comes out of COVID. It comes out of the sort of increased balkanization and the politicization, the partisanship in society. It comes out of that, and it has really become weaponized to a point that we've seen other aspects of society now. We hear more and more that this is a plot by the Democrats. It's a woke philosophy. It is all part of that. And we hear it from both sides, that this is a Republican plot. This is a Democrat plot. It's woke. It's not woke. Whatever. It's none of that. That's not what the environmental movement is all about. Climate change is not woke anything. But there are parts of the country where they believe that. And I get it. You have to just be able to address those issues and express, as we've mentioned before, the benefits of the technology in ways that the community best understands it. At some level, they may never understand. They may not want to understand. They may consistently oppose you. And in certain parts where you've got a community that opposes, understand that typically in a decision-making process, There is a broader community that doesn't necessarily know anything about this that has that same influence on decision makers, too. So you may be in a county where it's 45, 50,000 people in a county. The concern is expressed by a very vocal opposition group that may be five, six hundred people in that community. You've done everything as a developer that you can do to address that, including making modifications to your project a variety of things that demonstrate that you're really sensitive to their concerns, may not address all of them, but you can address many of them. And yet you're just not going to get there. You're not going to get there. And so the rest of the county only sees and understands the benefits because you're communicating with them as well. And so ultimately that all plays into decision maker decisions. But the thing that we tell developers is do the best you can with the community that you've got, but understand that there's usually a broader audience that you're trying to reach as well. This message really resonates with me, David, because I represent the financial sector at the wholesale level, and we hear this all the time. You know, you'll have tons of broad support and lots of commercial participants that are utilizing our products and economic reports by independent people that are showing billions of dollars of savings. But the voice of the few in the venue you are in can be very strong. And it's really easy to focus on that. It's absolutely very much the case, which is why the important issue in all of this is balance. You don't have to win the day with decision makers. You have to be able to demonstrate balance. And you have to be able to demonstrate credibility, responsibility, the effort to be responsive to a community is paramount. Again, if you're in a room at a town meeting and you're there with folks in t-shirts and signs and the whole routine, and you've got five, six, seven, 10 landowners in there, I wouldn't expect your landowners to stand up and say, hallelujah, this project's the best thing going. Most of them are going to be fairly intimidated by virtue of the fact that their neighbors are there and they're very vocal opponents. But you have to be able to demonstrate to the decision makers, the town council, the county committee, whatever that might be, that you've bent over backwards to do everything possible, including additional concessions in terms of setbacks and buffers, things that we've discussed, that you've done everything that you can do. And the benefits outweigh the concerns of that community You will continue to do what you can for that community. You continue to express that to decision makers. And then you leave the decision up to the decision makers to make that call. But they want to see balance. Ultimately, decision makers want to do the right thing. But if there's no messaging on both sides, 
pro and opposed, then decision makers only have one side of the argument upon which to make that decision. There's a lot of wisdom there, David. I mean, I hear two things in here that is really important. The first one is to kind of bring it back to your earlier point, how all politics are local here. You're absolutely right. If I'm a landowner and some developer has come to me and I've signed a lease to put a project on my property and all of my neighbors are picketing at the town hall over it, yeah, I'm probably not going to want to like stand up and like say, this is a sweet deal. I got a paycheck from a developer to do this thing that you hate. Because guess what? We're going to see each other at the local diner on Saturday while we're all waiting in line for breakfast. But also the people that are going to make these decisions live in these communities. Like this is their home too. So they're going to have to deal with the consequences of the decisions that they're going to make pros or cons. And so what you're saying here to me anyway, is that you are acknowledging the realities of that localism and the fact that these decision makers are the folks that are going to sort of bear the consequences of those decisions in real time. If you do that in a way that's sensitive to their community's needs, certain projects, like you said, some projects may just not be able to get over the finish line. And that might be unfortunate for that project, but project number two might be down the road and you've got a better shot next time at getting project number two over the finish line. But if you engage in a policy that is not tailored to that community's needs, you can make it very difficult for those future projects to go over the line too. You can almost make it much more difficult for those other projects to move forward. Do you think about it that way? Is that there's that secondary effect? It's like this one might not have penciled out, but hey, this puts us in a better position for the next one? Yes, you do that. The developers don't like to think of it. They want every project to be successful. If you've talked to some of the more experienced developers who have been in the industry for a long period of time, who experienced nothing but success five, seven, 10 years ago, they understand that the new reality is not that. And there are certain places where, again, if you do your homework, you increase your chances of success. But if you don't necessarily do your homework and you're playing the volume game, which is putting down roots everywhere you can, and trying to make these projects work. Not every developer, by the way, can do that. But those that are well-financed and capitalized can certainly do that. You're gonna lose one or two along the way. Hopefully you've created a situation where it's better down the road for projects in the future than for that immediate one. What we're sometimes finding is actually the reverse. You're now in an area of a state where you've put down one project, you've managed to work your way through the process, you've gotten your approval, now it's time for the second one. And the community is now ready for you. The opponents are now ready for you. And now they say, well, that's enough. We've seen enough. There are some impacts here that we didn't anticipate. You guys didn't do everything you said you were going to do. Whatever. They will come up with the litany of opposition arguments and they'll throw them at you. A decision-making body the second time around will go, you know what? We don't need to go through that again. So again, it's incumbent upon a developer to use all those tools and see if you can get projects across the finish line, but understand that sometimes it may not work. We've talked about, does it make it better or worse? Were there some lessons learned from the fracking revolution and what those communities went through, through that process and the land leases and the negotiations that were either beneficial or detrimental to the renewables community? Over time, renewable developers have become, as the opposition has become more sophisticated, renewable developers have become more sophisticated too about the impacts of their projects, whether it's wind or solar, on communities. And what that manifests itself in is you see some communities starting to revise their ordinances or develop their ordinances to take into consideration those lessons. The developers have learned those lessons too. In situations where there may not have been zoning associated with or ordinances associated with wind and solar, there may not have been that level of sensitivity right up front to setbacks, buffers, the things that we've spoken about before. Now they are. Now they understand what concerns the community. The level at which the turbine blade comes down and approaches the ground the fencing around the turbine, the fencing around the solar facility. It's the ability to create a situation where animals can move their way through, wildlife can move its way through and be safe. And what protections do you put in place for that? So there's been an evolution 
for developers. It's been an evolution for communities and developing ordinances, as it has been an evolution for the opponents. But yes, it's gotten to a point where there's much more sophistication now than there was 10, 15 years ago about the development of renewables and the impacts that it can have on communities and how you address that. Which to me is great. I think that that's such an important evolution because if the reality is that we need these types of technologies to achieve the clean energy goals, the climate change abatement goals that lots of these communities have, or the energy independence goals that other communities have out there, we need to come up with a strategy that is going to make sense. And I think one of the things that we talk about in this podcast is like, why can't we have solar panels everywhere at once right now? And the answer is, is that there's a lot of really important considerations here, you know, <laughs> that these are the types of things that are necessary but important and difficult conversations to have to making sure that we're doing this in the most thoughtful way so that we get the best product and the best overall long-term result out of the industry. And it's a huge piece of the pie going forward. You know, Midcon and ISO has a new phrase called prudence over pace. And I think I'm really starting to adopt that prudence over pace, which really goes in line with what you've been saying and what Mike just said of, let's not rush this, let's be thoughtful about it, and we will eventually get there in a more meaningful way. That's right. You cannot put up solar panels and wind turbines everywhere. There are certainly communities that, and we can talk about specific states, maybe on the next podcast. We can do that And you will see that there are certain communities that have an agrarian culture that are concerned about too much going up in a certain place. It's not that they're saying we don't like solar. It's they're saying we don't want so much here that it changes the nature of our culture and history in this county, in this state, whatever it might be. What they may turn around and do is try and impose some unreasonable requirements in terms of acreage caps and things of that nature. All that suggests is that the developers need to go in and have a good conversation with the community and with the decision makers and say, there's a balanced way to do this. Let's work together to do that. And we found that that can be a very meaningful approach. It's when both sides go to their respective corners that things don't work. That's such an important lesson for us to consider. Look, every piece of ground out there is important to somebody. So it might look to you like it's a nothing unused piece of property. And to someone else, it might be like a beautiful stand of trees that is the reason they moved to that neighborhood. Yeah, that prudence over pace concept that we're talking about, I think is huge. It's a perfect way to put it. So I want to pause here because we're coming towards the end of our session and make sure that in terms of what you wanted to accomplish, that we got everything in there. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't? What are your thoughts? I think the most important thing that I really wanted to get across to folks is the whole issue of stakeholder sentiment. Both of you played into that very nicely by saying, it seems like the fundamental thing that you're talking about here is you need to do your homework up front. You need to understand your community up front. If I did nothing in my life at this stage of my life, there got to be a certain point in my career at Next Era where I finally said, you know what, I'd rather just teach the next generation what's going on and how to address some of these things. You know, I could say it's all very nice and I want to give back stuff. (laughs) But the point is, there are folks who can learn from my mistakes and from our mistakes, and I'd rather teach them about that. That is the fundamental lesson. I will tell you, it's not for the recording, but some of the largest companies in our industry, including one that I work with, but others as well, will openly say, we don't do this. And it's such a mistake. And we really try. But sometimes our developers just don't get it. And the reason why they don't, maybe this is part of your podcast, the reason why they don't is because there are so many new developers And on their respective plates, one developer's plate, there may be 20, 25 projects. How do you do everything and focus your attention on 25 projects and get everything correct? Do everything right. The answer is you don't. And so you're perpetuating the mistakes. I think that's been captured here. That has been captured. And to be honest with you, David, I don't want to necessarily excise all of what you just said out of the podcast here. I want to actually try to (laughs) keep that because that is such a fabulous sentiment. Listen, because to your point, if you are a large firm that is funding lots of these developers, 
you can institutionalize that. Hey, guess what? Here are the fundamentals. How much sun shines on this particular piece of ground? How much wind blows over this particular ground? How close is it to my point of interconnection? And how well have you done on community engagement? particularly in an environment when we're thinking about the IRA, which is directing the incentives that are determinative to financing these things towards communities that they are expecting you to engage in and engage with in a particular way. That ultimately is the future. It's a path forward. This is going to cut my company out of certain aspects of business. <laughs> but if there is one thing that I would recommend to almost any company, and again, there's some very small companies, relatively new, they're smart. There are plenty of smart developers out there, and there's a lot of churn in our industry. But you know, the one thing I would tell them is develop a campaign mindset within your company. If you can think of things, and developers are developers. They are fundamentally cowboys. I come from the old school. Know how you may remember back in the day, Scythe Energies, which was an independent power company out of New York. I worked with Scythe starting in the late 90s and worked for them for five and a half, six years. The developers there were the classic cowboys. And the first day I joined Scythe, one of the developers walked in, introduced himself, nicest guy, said, it's wonderful to see you. I know what you're here to do. I'll talk to you when I have an issue. See ya. And basically I went back to his office after the day was over and I said, so let me try and get this straight. What you tried to tell me was, I'll call you when I need you but right now, have a nice day. <laughs> and he smiled at me and he said, yeah, it's about right. So the industry is full of those. Still, they're a little more sophisticated. A lot of them come out of the military experience, which is terrific because they've got a certain discipline and a mindset. They follow very linear thinkers, but they're not necessarily political thinkers. And so getting that knowledge into their brains is something that takes some doing while all the while suggesting to them that they're masters of their process because they are truly the captain of their project and they have to be responsible for the P&L associated with their project or it doesn't work. Somebody's got to be in charge. But for somebody like me, I say, I'm here to help you. I'm here to provide you with the tools that you need to get your project done. Some developers take it and some don't. Again, you need to have internally management that says you've got to do that in order to make these projects work. If you don't have somebody there that's prepared to instill the discipline in that, then oh, I'm just spitting in the wind. But it can work. It's basically like being a general and not understanding the consequences of your actions at war. That's right. When you said, I think all developers should have some sort of campaign plan and a campaign mindset, I would say the same thing for finance firms, frankly. Oh, without a doubt. There is a reason people in our community have always had a bad rep, even though we provide a ton of benefits to communities, is nobody has ever really taken the time to repeatedly tell that message. And if we've learned nothing over the last decade, it's that repetition of a strong message is very powerful. And if there's a way that we could speak to the financial community and say, you need to make sure that if you're investing in these companies, they need to understand that this is what they need to do. You have to have that discipline yourself, but you also need to make sure that if you're investing in those companies, presumably most of those folks who've got good resources are looking at development companies and saying they need to do these 15 things in order to make sure that they've done the right stuff for our investment. Everybody needs to know all of this. It's almost like a condition to close mentality, right? Like if we're going to invest in this platform, you are going to adopt these types of strategies because they're business necessities. They're kind of their mission critical steps in large part. You hit the nail on the head about investor sophistication. I think this is actually a real problem. I ran a prop account for multiple years before I launched my own fund. And now you're right, I do interact with investors on a daily basis. And I'm fortunate that I have a very sophisticated group of investors, but the number of investors I've encountered that are not very sophisticated, that don't do the due diligence, that are frankly asleep at the wheel, I find incredibly troubling. I'll try to avoid mentioning specific names, but you probably will know who I'm talking about. <laughs> there is a transmission project in New York State that is under development and has been for, I believe now it's 11 years. 
And there is one particular investor that's behind that firm, behind that project. You look at a company that's been at it for 11 years and you think either they're really smart and persistent or they're just not paying enough attention. Now, it will get done in year 14 or 15 of their effort. But as one of those company representatives said, yeah, we're 10 years into this. I'm not sure we know what the heck we're doing. And by the way, they're what all of us on this call would consider to be a very sophisticated player. And very large. And they've been at it for a while and very large, very large. And telling them what to do? Oh, no, no. So David, when we wrap the podcast here, we always like to ask our guests a couple of crazy questions here about the future. So the first one is, if you could snap your fingers, wave your magic wand and change one thing in our industry, what would you use your one wish on? What would you change? I would hope that at some point soon, we could lessen the balkanization of our society and the willingness of people to listen to each other and understand what we're saying. What's really become of all of this is messages that talk past each other. We're all trying to make political points. Everybody's trying to make political points. And it's devolved down to what folks at the receiving end consider to be disingenuous spin. If we could get to a level of reasonable discourse for all of this stuff and actually sit down and listen, we might actually get something constructive done. So (laughs) that's probably not a magic wand. That's probably 15 of them. And I don't know where I'm going to come up with 15 magic wands, but that's what I would wish for. Well, I will donate mine to that cause. Go ahead, Noha. Me too. So David, if we had David's crystal ball and we could see what the world was going to look like 10 years from now, what is your prediction on what project development is going to be like a decade from today? I think we're going to see a lot more. Wind and solar has gotten to a point where it's pretty traditional now when it comes to renewables. I think we will see a whole lot more storage to help balance out the system. I don't know about nuclear reactors and small modular reactors and the ability to do that. I think most of us are fairly confident that the ability to site large-scale reactors is probably somewhere in our rearview mirror. There's that. And there are technologies out there that I suspect some of us haven't even thought about yet that are looming on the horizon. I think there's much more smart grid that can be done and storage is a part of that. Fuel cells, the eternal hope. I would hope that we can see more about hydrogen and the use of fuel cells and the use of hydrogen in technologies that we consider to be traditional to this day, including basic standard generation facilities. There is so much more to be done with hydrogen and so much more that we need to see in terms of, we talked this whole time about permitting. Everybody's got great aspirations for permitting and there's great funding out there for hydrogen. But again, at that local level, when you're talking about hydrogen, there's a level of education and acceptance that really hasn't even begun yet. That's what I see 10, 15 years out, that hopefully we will see that. Maybe I'll get there. (laughs) Well, David, I love your vision and I love what you're doing now at this point in your career and just the focus on communities, local and state level. I think we need that more in this country more than ever, I think. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I appreciate what you're doing, getting the message out through this podcast. It's exactly what we need. So thank you for doing this. And thank you for having me and look forward to anything in the future that you guys are doing. I look forward to listening to your future podcast. David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. Anytime. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power. No Power.